Good morning to you. My name is Chad. I'm the senior pastor here. We're in Genesis chapter 8 this morning, the end of chapter 8. We want you to be able to follow along with us as we're a people under the Word of God. As I said, we're in Genesis chapter 8. We're really going to read verses 20 through 22 this morning, Genesis chapter 8, in verses 20 to 22. As we continue in our series in Genesis, I want to remind you of where we are as we even come to this passage. God had looked upon the world and seen it as given over to wickedness, that every intention of the heart of man was only evil continuously, that man was destroying the creation that God had made. And so God determined to bring a judgment of the flood, and in doing so, God covenanted with one man, Noah, and his family to bring them through that flood judgment on an ark. And so God commanded Noah to build an ark, warning him of that flood judgment, and that Noah and his family would get on the ark as well as the animals whom God would send. Then God commanded Noah to get on the ark. So first to build it in chapter 6 and verse 13 and following. And then God spoke again in chapter 7 and verse 1 and said, get on the ark. And then the Lord shut them in as the flood waters came. And then in chapter 8, God remembers Noah and parts or separates the waters and they land on dry ground on the mountains of Ararat. And the Lord says, get off the ark. Simple enough. Build it. Get on it. Now the flood is over. Get off of it. And we're at the scene now where Noah departs the ark. And we see the first thing that Noah does when he comes off of the ark on the mountains of Ararat. So let's look there. Verse 20, Genesis 8 and verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand this short passage in which Noah brings a burnt offering before you, in which you accept that and then promise to preserve the creation. Help us understand the great end of that whole work. Help us understand what it is that your Spirit is saying to the churches as he has superintended this word through Moses for the sake not only of the people of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, but for the sake of the church in every age so that we'd understand why it is that you promised to preserve the earth from a flood judgment. We pray that your Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Noah has come off the ark, we see this scene in which Noah makes an offering, and while he makes an offering, we hear the internal thoughts of God's heart. It's a fascinating scene that really gives us a kind of structure, if you will, for understanding the Noahic covenant. God has made a covenant with Noah, and we want to understand that covenant, really established a covenant with Noah, or more expressly has made good on, has kept or kept his word with regard to a covenant in and with Noah. And we see two things about that covenant that I want you to understand this morning. First, we see the universality of that covenant. There is in the Noahic covenant the nature of preserving the whole of the earth. It's a kind of universal promise, if you will, a promise of common grace, a promise to preserve the whole earth. 
we also see in that covenant a particularity. So notice a universality, preserving of the whole earth, and a particularity. In other words, that particularity is the end for which God is preserving the whole earth to save his people in the seed of the woman. We see both of those things in the Noahic covenant. If we're going to understand the Noahic covenant properly, we have to understand that we're seeing both of those things. And so what we'll do this morning in order to understand that as we look at this passage is look first at Noah's offering in Genesis 8.20. That will be our first major, if you will, point. Noah's offering in Genesis 8.20. And second, at God's internal thoughts. Now that sounds strange, like a strange second point, because it is a foreign kind of concept to talk about. First, Noah's offering, Genesis 8.20, that makes a lot of sense to us. Second, God's internal thoughts, Genesis 8, 21 through 22. So let's look first at Noah's offering. Look there at chapter 8 and verse 20. Then Noah built an altar. The first thing he does when he comes off of the ark on the mountains of Ararat is to build an altar. Built an altar to the Lord. An altar in which he's going to offer a sacrifice to Yahweh, the covenant God. And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird. If we remember, he brought seven pairs of clean animals and clean birds onto the ark. One pair of unclean animals and birds, if you will, and seven pairs of clean animals and clean birds. And he brought them on and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So that's what he did. He offered burnt offerings on the altar. And here's the question that I want to ask. What is this sacrifice that Noah gives? What is this offering that Noah brings forth? And I want to offer a three-part answer to that. So did you hear that? Point one about the offering of Noah has three subpoints. Three-part answer to the question to answering the question, what is this sacrifice or this offering? They're going to come fairly quickly. Here's the first one I want you to grab hold of. It is a sacrifice of atonement. Noah is on the mountain offering the atoning sacrifice that he needs. Noah's a sinner. And Noah needs God's wrath against him for his sin to be forgiven. Listen, Noah knows that very clearly. How does Noah know he needs God's wrath against him forgiven? Because he's just seen God judge the whole earth in a flood for their sin. He's just seen very clearly a picture of God's wrath. And he knows he needs forgiveness. So what does Noah do when he gets off the ark on the mountains of Ararat? Noah builds an altar. We see that happen with Abraham, by the way. I won't turn to all these passages, but Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 7 and 8, God promises to save the whole earth or bless all the families of the earth through the offspring of Abraham. And when he makes that promise to do that to the offspring of Abraham, Abraham then builds an altar to the Lord. We see that as well in Genesis 22, which we'll look at in a bit. That's likely what's being inferred in Genesis 4 when Cain and Abel bring their offerings They likely, what's being inferred is they bring their offerings to an altar where they're consumed by fire, which I talked about in Genesis 4, at the gate of Eden. So we need to remember that first, Noah brings an offering. Second, remember that God had commanded Noah to bring seven pairs of clean animals. And the purpose of bringing the seven pairs of clean animals, and not just one pair, is to accommodate the sacrifice. Because if he brought one pair of clean animals on the ark and he sacrificed them, what would the problem be? That would be the end of those kind of animals. So to further show this was an atoning sacrifice, let's look at the second part of that answer. So first, I'm saying he built an altar and offered clean animals. Second, we see here that the name of it, look at verse 20, took some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings. On the altar. It's a whole burnt offering. So it's a whole burnt offering. That's what I want you to get a second answer. Look at Genesis 22. We're going to see the whole burnt offering there as well. 
with Abraham. Genesis 22, we know God gave Abraham the son for whom he had been waiting through Sarah. The son who would be the seed of the woman. The seed of Abraham who would bless all the nations. He had waited for this son. And Abraham is going to take him to Mount Moriah. Which is, by the way, in Jerusalem. I'm not going to get into all that now. We'll get there and get to Genesis 22. And offer his only son, who, incidentally, the son carries the wood up the mountain to be offered. Giving you massive allusions to what's coming with Christ carrying his own cross to the mountain in Jerusalem to be sacrificed. But he carries it up. But I want to look at the nature of this offering. Look at Genesis 22, 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. So note that language. There is a whole Burnt offering, again, it's the same language that we find in Genesis 8.20. And here in Genesis 22.7, this language of the whole burnt offering. But we see this language again more than once in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books that were written by Moses. Namely, we see this language in Leviticus 1. And the reason I bring this up is because Leviticus 1 is going to give us better understanding of the whole burnt offering. So look there at the third book of the Old Testament, or the Bible. Look at Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. Now, if you remember the story here, at the end of Exodus, the people of God have a tabernacle that's been built according to God's instructions, and God's Shekinah glory fills the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, and the people, not even Moses, can enter. It's a huge problem. The people are still kept far from the Lord. They cannot enter his presence. And that's how the book of Exodus essentially ends. With this kind of problem. And Leviticus is the answer to the problem. How do we enter where God is? Look at verse 3 of Leviticus 1. If his offering is a burnt offering, same language as Genesis 8.20 and as Genesis 22.7. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make what? Atonement for him. To make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire of the altar. But its entrails and legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, now catch the language, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now we can go on. This whole burnt offering is both an atoning sacrifice and an offering of thanksgiving. It's both of those things. It is given in thanksgiving or gratitude to the Lord for his kindness. Further, it's symbolic, I want you to hear this because it's important, it's symbolic of offering one's whole self to God. The animal represents you, and the whole thing is burnt, and the smoke of that sacrifice ascends to the Lord, and so the one offering symbolically ascends to the Lord as well. Thus, many scholars rightly call it the ascension offering. The ascension offering. That's what Noah's doing. The Lord has graciously saved Noah through the flood, which is compared to death and resurrection 
First Peter makes that clear, but he's in an ark, which is the Egyptian loan word, as I told you, for a coffin. Being saved through the flood judgment. And First Peter makes the comparison when he comes out on the dry ground out of the flood, it is compared to a resurrection. And then he brings the whole burnt offering, the atoning sacrifice, and ascends to God's presence on the mountain. That's what Noah's doing. The Lord has graciously saved Noah through the flood. I want you to keep hearing this imagery because it's so important as Noah as a type of the coming Christ. What does the coming Christ do? He is a righteous and blameless man in his generation, as Noah is told to us as being. He is of the seed of the woman. He, in fact, is the seed of the woman, ultimately, to whom Noah points. But Noah is also of the seed of the woman. He goes through the floodwaters of God's judgment on the cross in his death. He raises from the dead, and then he goes and takes that sacrificial offering, Hebrews tells us, and presents it in the Holy of Holies. He ascends into God's place where the Lord is. And it's a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. And so, in Christ, we ascend with him to the Holy of Holies. So that we go with him behind the veil. And Noah's pointing to all this. It's remarkable. Noah knows the Lord has been gracious to him. And in gratitude for such grace, Noah offers a whole burnt offering or an ascension offering. Noah's seeking atonement for sin and offering himself in thanksgiving for God's grace. What is Noah's first act when he comes off the ark? I want you to pay attention to this. Noah does not come off the ark and think, you know what I need? I need a home for myself. I will build a house now. Noah comes off the ark, and the first thing he does is he builds an altar to offer an atoning sacrifice, one that was given in thanksgiving and that symbolized the offering of himself to God. Now, this leads us to the third part of our explanation of this offering. It is an acceptable sacrifice. Look back at Genesis Chapter 8 and verse 21, you remember, by the way, that it was pleasing aroma in Leviticus 1. Let's look here again. Genesis 8 and verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, it was a clean, unblemished animal offered in faith by Noah and in accord with God's command. Thus the Lord is pleased to allow the smoke to ascend to his nostrils. Now there's a pun here. We don't see the pun or the, you know what a pun is, a play on words. We don't see the play on words here in English, but it's obvious in Hebrew. The language here is a pun on Noah's name. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. You guys read that? Is something in Hebrew like the Lord smelled the Noahic sacrifice. The word here for Noah, it's a soothing sacrifice that brought rest, that brought rest In other words, Noah is fulfilling his purpose. What's his purpose? Genesis 5, 28. Listen to the prophecy of Noah's father about Noah. Listen. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. That's 528. Listen to 529. And called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us rest from our work, and from the painful toil of our hands. He is the man the Lord had appointed to bring rest to the ground. As a type of Christ, a picture of the Christ, he has offered a pleasing sacrifice that brings rest from the curse upon the ground. The Lord will never again curse the ground. In other words, he defines that here, what he means by never again curse the ground Destroy it by a flood. He says that clearly in verse 21. He will never again curse the ground. Look at verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature 
as I have done. I am not going to bring the flood judgment upon the earth. He will never again curse the ground due to Noah's sacrifice. A sacrifice the Lord appointed him to offer. Now here's where the problem comes in or maybe the misunderstanding that I want to make sure you're really clear about because people start to think here in their misreading of this passage. In other words, in the reading of this passage pulled out of its larger context of Genesis 3 through 7, they begin to misread this passage, really 3 through 8, 19. They begin to misread this passage and think of Yahweh like a pagan deity. And so when I say, due to Noah's sacrifice, God no longer is going to curse the ground, people hear, oh, so Noah bought him off. Like pagan gods, you go and do things to buy their favor so that you can get good things for them. And until you do that thing, the pagan god isn't giving you anything. It's kind of a quid pro quo, this for that. I'm going to give you this, and you're going to give me that. And so what I learned from this is actually what I need to do is become really good at buying off the Lord. But that's not what's happening here. It's not what's happening here. It is not that Noah determined on his own to offer a sacrifice that would somehow cause God to change his attitude and purpose toward sinful humanity. It is that the Lord promised to save all mankind through the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 and that the Lord graciously created and appointed Noah to the mission that he has in that greater purpose of God. Further, the Lord set his grace upon Noah and saved him from the flood, Genesis 6.8. In doing so, the Lord caused his covenant to stand. In other words, a prior covenant already in place, which I'm saying is Genesis 3.15, that God is making good on with and through Noah. And what was the covenant promise? It is his promise to send the seed of the woman who would save his people. This covenant promise is being made good on, if you will, in and through Noah and his family. Further, think about what the Lord provided. The Lord provided for Noah by making clean animals to come onto the ark. There are clean animals who come onto the ark. The Lord provided for that. In other words, the Lord, please hear this, the Lord provided an atoning sacrifice through which the Lord would establish or make good upon his covenant promise to save his people. Think about all the Lord did. Man sinned, the Lord made a promise. The Lord then sent a son named Noah. The Lord then set that son apart covenantally, was gracious to him, made promises to him, brought him on the ark, sent seven pairs of clean animals with him for the sacrifice. You guys following the story here? This is the Lord's work. Christian, I don't know if you've given thought to how gracious all of this is. Man brought the sin. We brought the sin. The Lord provided everything good. The Lord created Noah. The Lord called Noah. The Lord graciously covenanted with Noah. The Lord warned Noah of the flood. The Lord provided Noah instructions for an ark. The Lord called him into the ark. The Lord shut him into the ark. The Lord brought him safely through the floodwaters. The Lord brought him on the ark to the mountains of Ararat. The Lord called Noah out of the ark. The Lord provided clean animals for the atoning sacrifice for Noah. The Lord approved of Noah's offering. And then the Lord made a further promise to Noah. In other words, this is all of the Lord. It is all of grace. And Noah knew this was all of grace. So Noah offered this ascension offering. He did so because he knows only the Lord can save him and that the Lord has set his saving love upon him. Well, beloved, the Father sent his Son to atone once for all for your sins. And what is our response to such grace? Like the ascension offering where you offer your whole self in a manner that's acceptable to God? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers in light of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You hear it? 
We respond this way not because we want to earn favor with God. We respond this way because he has graciously shown us favor in his son. I want you to hear this, beloved. The Lord's heart toward you is loving kindness. His heart is set upon you before the foundation of the world. And and we can see that in our next major point, the Lord's heart toward his people. I said we would look at God's internal thoughts. Let's call it the Lord's heart toward his people. Look at Genesis 8, 21, 22. This is our second major point, the Lord's heart toward his people. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, that is a remarkable phrase for a number of reasons I want to get to. What did he say? I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, now here you're going to get these Hebrew merisms, which is like these kind of comparison extremes. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Here's the question. Why does the Lord promise and covenantally bind himself to give grace to sinful man? Why does he appoint Noah and send him to this end? Is it because of something good in us? Is it because of something good in us? No. In fact, look at Genesis 8.21. It makes it really clear it's not. I will never again curse the ground because of man for what? The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. There's your summary of you. Come in for counseling. I feel like I'm kind of a wreck and I have all kinds of problems. To which we want to say, hey, listen, you can run down that rabbit hole all you want. But if you're like Alice running down that rabbit hole, you are never coming back because you're never going to find the bottom of it. You're worse than you know. That's kind of good news. Because then I can just sort of be done with trying to figure out how wicked I am. Worse than I could find out anyway. And I can move on to the grace of God. Why does he give him grace? For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Why does he give us grace? Well, that answer is also found in Genesis 8.21. The Lord said in his heart. The Lord said in his heart. I want you to understand that Noah's sacrifice really did please the Lord. Really did please the Lord. But we would be remiss if we thought that God was somehow opposed to Noah prior to that offering. Or if we thought God had no design to save his people prior to that offering. The Lord called Noah out prophetically at his birth to be the seed of Seth, through whom the seed of the woman would come. The Lord showed grace to Noah before he built the ark. The Lord covenanted with Noah to save him in the seed of the woman. What Moses is now telling us is that the Lord has received the sacrifice which he commanded Noah to give and which he provided for Noah to give. You see, the Lord graciously gives what he commands. And after the fall of man into sin, if the Lord does not graciously give what he commands, then we would never, never obey a single command. But I want to stop and consider what's being said here. The Lord said in his heart. That is an amazing statement. It's given to us to help us understand the Lord's kind purposes toward his people. Now it's analogical speech. I want to say something about that. What do I mean by analogical? To put it simply, I mean that it compares two things. It, analogies compare two things. Even you children in here know what an analogy is. So kids, think about an analogy for a second. When I was a child, if we were playing sports, I'm talking about among the boys, You know, back then, the boys and girls didn't really play sports together. But among the boys, we're playing sports, we're roughhousing, and we're playing sports, and one of us got knocked down and started crying 
which happened almost every time we played sports, of almost any kind, even baseball, which seems like it wouldn't be have an occasion to knock people down, but you're not paying attention if you think that's not the case. Someone would fall down and start crying, and inevitably another boy would say, either A, stop being a crybaby, or B, you're acting like a girl. One of the two. In one case, you are being compared to a crying infant. That's an analogy. In another, you're being compared to an overly sensitive and emotional female. Another analogy. The point was not that you're an infant nor that you're a female. They were comparing you to a crying infant or a girl. Now, they probably don't say stop being a girl anymore because it's probably not politically correct. But that's what we did back then. They were comparing your behavior. We use these kinds of analogies all the time. I could say, Jason is as happy as a lark. You might go, happy as a lark? What, what's that mean? Well, if you've ever heard a lark, a lark song, it sounds very happy. So they would hear that bird sing, and they would say, that's a very happy sound. So that person is as happy as a lark. I've been present when some of your kids were born at the hospital, not in the room, but at the hospital. <laughs> or when some of you were adopted in the actual courtroom when it happened. And I could say, your parents were on top of the world. You obviously know, I don't mean they're standing on top of the earth. Or that your parents were on cloud nine. That means you're sitting on clouds. I don't know why we numbered it nine. Maybe it sounds better than six or something like that. But we know they're not sitting on top of clouds. It's analogies. These are analogies we use. It's a way of describing their elation, their ecstasy, and the happiness they felt. Well, whenever we describe God, we have to use comparative statements. He is the creator. He is God, and we are creatures. Thus, the only language that we have to describe him is creaturely language. Thus, the best we can do is comparative language. We compare him to something in the creaturely existence. It's an analogy. Our best efforts cause us to speak of the Lord in human terms and concepts. Even when we speak in the negative, we use human terms. We just negate them. So we're finite, meaning we have a starting point and end point, right? We haven't existed forever. So we talk about God, we just negate it. He's infinite, not finite. We're mutable, we change. We speak about God, he's immutable, not mutable. Notice we're just taking human creaturely terms and negating them. Because we don't know what else to say. It's like when we pick the word Trinity, word persons in the Trinity. God is one in essence and three in person. You go, what is a person? Well, it's not like I'm a person and you're a person because those are two separate instances of an essence, not two persons in one essence. And so we say, what do we mean? We mean something akin to that. So Augustine finally says, here, listen, here's the bottom line. We say persons instead of not saying anything at all. In other words, it's the best we can do. That's what we do when we talk about God. We use comparative language. Now look at verse 21. Here in this passage, the Lord's declaration is being compared to how humans respond to something pleasing. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, if someone does something that pleases us, then we are pleased And we have thoughts in our own hearts about how we'll respond, don't we? In our own hearts, we feel pleasure. And then we think, how do I respond to this? I should say, thank you. That was very kind of you. And here the Lord's pleasure is expressed to us. In our own hearts, we think about how we reply and hear the Lord's inner thoughts are being expressed to us. It's kind of a remarkable passage in as much as you're hearing the inner thoughts of God. Whatever that means. We hear it in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. You're hearing the inner thoughts of God. We'll hear them again in Genesis 11. Hear them at the end of Genesis 3. What does God say in his heart here? He says this, I will never again curse the ground because of man. 
By this, he means that he will not destroy the earth. That's what we went on to see. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I've done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, etc. It shall not cease. But pay attention to what else he says. I will never again curse, right in the middle there, verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now, this is the startling part of the whole thing. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I don't know if you've stopped and considered that for a minute. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. It sounds like he would say, for I see something kind of good in him. There's something redeemable there. He's lovable. I should love him. That's not what it says. It's kind of a strange thing because isn't this the same language that was used when he destroyed man in the flood? Genesis chapter 6, listen, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord regrets he makes man in the earth and the Lord decides to destroy him in a flood. Now, for that very same reason, God will not destroy him with a flood. Does that make you stop and consider, wait, wait, what's happening here? Because of that, He destroyed them in a flood, and now, because of that, he will not destroy them again in a flood. I hope that does to your brain what it did to mine when I was studying. What's going on here? Well, I have kind of four, and they're very quick sub-points, so if you miss them, it's okay. They're being recorded. Very quick. First, consider the condition of man. What's the condition of man? Radical depravity. In other words, he's depraved at the root. We're born guilty and corrupt in Adam. In sin, our mothers conceived us. Now, I'm not saying we're as depraved as we can be. You know, you can get more wicked than you currently are. You see it. Turn on the news. But every faculty of our humanity is marred by sin. Our bodies and soul are corrupted by sin. Our minds, our hearts, our inclinations are curved or bent towards sin. So we're radically depraved. That's the condition of man that's being talked about here. The intention of his heart is evil from his youth. Now, second, who is man here in this passage? Have you stopped and thought about that? I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. All right, God has just wiped out all of mankind, save who? Noah and his family. So whose heart intentions are evil from his youth. Noah and his family. They're the only people on earth. It must be speaking about them. And generically, about their offspring. Now you might say, it includes more than them. Yes, that's right. But it does not include less than them. Though they were saved through the flood, they are still the children of Adam. And thus they are depraved sinners like the rest of mankind before them. Third, let's consider what the flood did not and could not do. Think about this. Man is depraved. That's his condition. The man we're speaking about here is first and foremost Noah and his family and then their offspring. And third, what the flood did not and could not do. The flood cleansed the earth, but the flood could not cleanse the heart of man. Do not miss this, as it is key to why God does what he does. Even though the flood cleansed wicked man from the face of the earth, it could not, and it did not cleanse wickedness from the heart of Noah's family. Fourth, let's consider why God will now preserve the earth in the face of man's sin. Why will God preserve the earth in the face of man's sin? In Genesis 6, the Lord dealt with wicked humanity with a flood of judgment. Now, the Lord will deal with wicked man by preserving man on the earth. And his declaration to do so is tied to Noah's acceptable sacrifice. How so? Well, Noah, someone great whom God had set apart, called, and covenanted grace to. And Noah understood his sin and his need for atonement. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Hebrews 11 makes that clear. He was grateful, loving, 
and obedient toward the Lord. And the Lord decreed He would covenant with Noah as the means to bring rest from the curse upon the ground, the curse that brought the flood judgment. For this reason, Noah's covenant is often seen or called a continuation of the original covenant with creation. Or some people say it's a covenant of common grace, meaning the sun shines and and the rain pours on the just and the unjust. Unbelievers still have air conditioning in their home, right? The Lord's common grace, he's preserving all of mankind. Noah's covenant will bless the whole world inasmuch as God will preserve the whole world from judgment. I think that's true. When people say this is a common grace covenant, I think they're right. But it is not a sufficient understanding of this covenant with Noah. It's insufficient. A necessary, a necessary truth about Noah's covenant, God will preserve the whole earth. Not a sufficient understanding of Noah's covenant. Rather, I believe this preserving the earth which we see in this covenant is an administration of the greater covenantal purpose of God saving his people in the seed of the woman. In other words, God is patiently enduring man's sin as he sends the seed of the woman to save his people. Peter shows us clearly in 2 Peter 3. Here's what does not happen in Noah's covenant. God does not say, I'm just going to preserve the earth forever for no good purpose except, you know, you're wicked, I'll let you stay. He's preserving it for a purpose. A purpose. And Peter shows us that. If you remember in 2 Peter 3, the believers are being mocked because Jesus had not returned yet. They were all saying, hey, listen, you need to repent and believe the gospel because Jesus is returning soon. He's coming soon. And so they're being mocked. Where is the return of Christ? It's sure been a long time. It's been decades now. No return of Jesus. Where is he? And they're mocking him. Jesus said he'd return soon. And so the unbelievers are mocking how long it was taking. And Peter compared that mocking and God's delayed judgment to the time of Noah's flood. He compared it to that. And Peter explains two things. One, This delay is not long on God's calendar. Not long on God's calendar. That's the first comparison he makes. If you remember, it takes over 100 years between the time God tells Noah to start building the ark until the flood comes and people mock him as he preaches the gospel. Now it's taking lots and lots of years and people are going, where is it? He's saying, look, this delay is not long on God's calendar. Second, he says there's an important reason for God's preserving the earth or for his delay. What's his delay? For the salvation of man. Listen, 2 Peter 3.8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Who is he speaking to? The beloved. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. He's talking to his church. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. You hear that? This is not long on God's calendar. He's eternal, infinite. A thousand years That's a day for him. And that's even speaking analogically, comparatively. It isn't even a whole day for him. He doesn't even experience time. So he didn't like even experience a whole day. He experienced no time at all. Just boom, there goes your mind, right? We experienced it, he didn't. I don't know what to do with that. It's just life. Deal with it. So he's not slow. Second, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise As some count slowness, it's not like he's like, well, I don't know if I really want to keep the promise. I'm sort of hedging my bets. Maybe someday I'm thinking about it. No. But listen to the reason he's slow. But is patient toward you. Who's you? The beloved. Not wishing that any, any who, any of you beloved, if you follow the pronouns in their cases, should perish. But that all, all of who? All of you beloved should reach repentance. The Lord is preserving the earth through the covenant of Noah so that he might send the seed of the woman and then gather all his people to salvation in him. Yes, it is true that the Lord is establishing a type of the new creation in Noah. We're going to see that next week. And that the Lord is preserving the earth through this covenant. It is true that 
Noah is a type of the second Adam who's coming. But Noah is not the second Adam whom God promised. And this preserved old creation that we presently live in is not the new creation for which Noah was ultimately waiting. Rather, this is pointing to Christ and the new creation in him. And Noah knew that. Noah knew that this covenant was not ultimately about the preservation of the old creation. He knew there was a greater end. He shows that he knows that in his atoning sacrifice. What is the greater end for which God preserves the earth? To send the seed of the woman who will save his people. This is precisely why Isaiah, here's what I'd say. Isaiah is going to tell you that Noah's covenant points to that. Not just to common grace to preserving all men, but to the particular saving grace of gathering his people in the seed of the woman. Isaiah is going to pick that theme up. He's going to compare Noah's covenant to the new covenant. If you remember, the people under the old Mosaic covenant had left Egypt, been under that covenant, had gone into the land, and they had set up kings, and their kings were wicked. And God continued to warn them, both in the covenant law he'd originally given and through the prophets who came to them, that you need to cease and desist with the wickedness, or I will exile you. Repent of your sins, believe the gospel, be obedient, or I will exile you. They did not listen. They did not listen. He had warned them for generations. So he exiled the northern kingdom of Israel under Assyria, and then he exiled the southern kingdom of Judah under Babylon about 100 years later. But just as the Lord did not flood the earth again, so he promised he would not exile the people again, but save them in the new covenant. He promised he would give them a new covenant and save them. Why? Listen to Isaiah 54, 9 through 10. Don't turn there, just listen. This is like the days of Noah to me, the exile and the coming new covenant. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. Now listen, here's what he's going to ground it all in. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Do you hear why the Lord did all this? Do you know why the Lord preserves your breath right now? Gives you life right now in the face of your sin and you know you have it. Why does he not just cut you off and strike you dead right here and right now? Because he has every right to and as a holy God, it's sometimes surprising he doesn't. It's often surprising that he doesn't. Why does he not? Listen, my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. The Lord loves you, therefore he covenantally bound himself to save you. The Lord loves you, therefore he sent his son for you. And the son did not come and make an offering that buys off the father. Like the father was angry, and then Jesus comes and says, I know you're angry, so I'm going to offer myself to buy you off. That is not what happens. Listen to the language. That's upside down if you read it that way. Here's the language. For God so loved the world, that's speaking of the father there, we know that because that he gave his only begotten son. The father is in love for you, sent his son. Sent his son. God does not love you because of Jesus' sacrifice for you. God loves you, therefore, Jesus' sacrifice for you. For here in his love, not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. God loves you, Therefore, he sent his son for you. Unbelieving friends, 
consider the patience of God to, to you. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Trust in Jesus Christ, and you will be forgiven your sins. God is patient toward you, but he is not permissive of your sin. At some point, he will return to judge the living and the dead. So look to him. Look to him. Children, I know you're young, but this is a call to believe in Jesus and turn from your sin. It applies to you. You will not be saved by the faith of your parents. You must trust in Jesus. And if you haven't trusted in Christ, then when you're having your family lunch today and discussing the sermon, as I'm sure you always do, tell your parents that you want to know what it means to be saved. Talk to them about it. Ask them about believing in Jesus. I am certain they will be overflowing with happiness to talk to you about that. Finally, beloved, consider the grace of God toward you. God thought in his own heart about you. And what did he think in his own heart about you? What were his eternal designs for you? Out of his eternal love for you, he decreed good for you. And the greatest good he could give you is himself. So he did. That ought to cause pleasure in your heart that caused you to think within, how can I respond but with joyful thanksgiving and the offering of my whole life to him? How can I respond but that way? Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to trust in your son who, after making an offering for sin, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, your Son who upholds the universe by the word of His power, who is actively preserving us to the end that we might look to Christ and repent of our sins and be saved. May we be thankful for such grace, grace designed for us before the foundation of the world, in and through the person of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And may we trust in Him and be thankful and offer our whole lives to him as an acceptable offering which is pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.